This is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. Matthew. Yes. I recently read a headline. Okay. And it said that pollution is killing black Americans. That sounds right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> African Americans are 75% more likely than others to live near fatal facilities that produce hazardous waste. Mm. And so, you know, our grassroots environmental justice movements trying to address these things. Mm hmm. Philadelphia, for instance, 44% black, received a warning from the America Lung Association in 2019 that if you live in Philadelphia County, the air you breathe may put your health at risk. Mm. Right? According to the EPA in 2016, the refinery looms over Gray's Ferry was responsible for the bulk of toxic air emissions in the city. And the EPA found that the refinery had been out of compliance with the Clean Air Act nine out of the past 12 quarters through 2019 with little recourse. Mm. Okay? So though black communities bear disproportionate hardships of environmental crisis, they've been historically left out of consideration in the environmental movement. I'm not surprised by that either. I don't know. I'm not, you know. <laughs> And, of course, we don't need to explain to listeners how with these issues within the city and how black people came to be kind of caged in the city, mm -hmm. dating back to when we had issues with fair housing and redlining mm -hmm. that kind of barred uh, black people away from certain areas, certain in the areas, right, and access to housing in, in other areas, which brings us to a different matter. <laughs> if we think about access to green space, mm. and as the COVID-19 pandemic has you know, raged around the community and we saw the disparate racial disparities, access to green spaces, access to parks, right. nature reserves, forests, you know, community gardens, we see a distinct variance along racial and economic lines. That yeah. means poor, poor people and people of color face a lack of access to these kinds of sources. So, like, why do I, like, you know, I'm sure a lot of people might make jokes and say black people don't want to be in the woods anyway. You know, <laughs> I had a struggle life coming up, you know. Right. <laughs> you know, I'll go camping and, you know, like, I glamp me, please. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know. <laughs> But these findings suggest that certain sectors of the population are not able to obtain the health-related benefits mm -hmm. of being proximate to green spaces right? and what that offers, right? Outdoor spaces provides not only tree cover and vegetation that provides crucial health benefits, such as decreasing air pollution. Right. And that's why these things affect black people, because they're living in cities that are... Highly urbanized. Concrete jungles, yeah. <laughs> you know? And trees and ecosystem maintains these kinds of vital sources of clean air and other kinds of things that are, are necessary for your health, right? In addition to mitigating the effect of heat. Right. 
you can also see the benefits of outdoor recreation, how that affects mental health. Right. Um, you know, spending as little as two hours in nature studies show is associated with better health and well-being outcomes. If you go to Arkansas, let's come down to us now in Arkansas. The natural state. <laughs> the natural state. The Ozarks. That's right. You know, if we look at the kinds of systemic racial inequalities that happens in the United States, we could see it more visible here on the Arkansas landscape, mm. right? If we move on from not just the environmental hazards and disasters or lack of access to green space, but food justice, mm-hmm. food insecurity issues, right? Feed in America has Arkansas as the second highest food insecure state in the country. Mm. Half a million Arkansans struggle to find enough to eat, including oh, nearly 200,000 children, and place the state third for childhood hunger. Arkansas, which is the home of Tyson Chicken, <laughs> Walmart. Oh, dear. Plenty of places where folks ought to be able to get food, right? Ah, one would think so, right? According to Healthy People 2020, the primary factors of food insecurity and hunger include poverty, income, unemployment, and lack of services. And Arkansas saw an increase in the gap between high and low-income earners. Mm. And there's a shortage, to add to that, of affordable rental homes made worse by the COVID-19 pandemic and what we've seen in real estate prices here in the Northwest Arkansas region in particular. And so many households are severely cost-burdened because of that, right? Spending more than half of their income on housing and severely cost-burdened households are more than likely than other renters to sacrifice necessities like healthy food and health care. Yeah. So today, we're going to be talking to someone who brings all of that together. Love it. Terius Bruce is a second-year environmental dynamics PhD student at the University of Arkansas who is interested in sustainable food resiliency in low-income areas. Uh, Terrius, welcome to On This Plan. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. All right. So, Terrius, who is Terrius? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So, Terrius is a very interesting person. I don't see myself as, you know, fitting in one box. I think I go with the flow. I think that... I'm a people's person, and I'm here to serve. And I think that's the best way to you know, sum me up. I think that being able to adjust and adapt to different situations and settings. I've uh, lived in Florida for quite a while. I lived in Ghana for about a year. I've also gone to a couple of other countries. And what I noticed is that people tend to gravitate to me because I seem to open myself up and be uh, a sponge to absorb what they have to offer and help and give how I can. And that's the the best way to sum me up. Were you always this way? Were you always a sponge? Were you always open? I've always been open to understanding different possibilities. I think I've been close to uh, just accepting what the status quo says or what the norm is. I think as I was younger, Uh, My biggest thing was I wasn't there to write those laws or rules, so why should I abide by them? Help me understand why it should be important to me to follow. If I couldn't understand that pattern or that flow, I just didn't do it. 
And I think a lot of times people saw me as a rebel or uh, sometimes a leader or the voice that, you know, people are afraid to, to give. Uh, and that's always just been me. I, I tend to kind of stand alone to myself. And somehow, you know, the love just kind of follows with the people. And that's just how I've been. We'll be right back. You get a lot of information on demand from KUAF's podcasts, but you can get even more from listening to KUAF on air. Hello, I'm Timothy Dennis. When you listen to KUAF's live programming feed, you get the latest news from NPR programs like Morning Edition, 1A, and All Things Considered, local weather forecasts throughout the day, news about events happening in northwest Arkansas, and unique music programming on the weekends you won't find anywhere else. Listen for free on your radio at 91.3 FM, at our website, KUAF.com, or tell your smart speaker to play KUAF. Terius, tell me a little bit about your interest in in food security. Did you grow up in a food secure home? I did grow up in a food secure home. Food was something that I didn't look at as being without. Uh, but at the same time, I didn't really understand what it meant to be without food. I didn't have a lot of people that I could identify to say, oh, they don't have food. So food was always something that was familiar to me. Food represented love and care and affection and family. Um, I associated food uh, with being around people that I care about, and I never saw that you know there was a lack of food. I don't think it was until maybe high school or maybe yeah maybe high school or college when I realized that there are people who are without food and they have no way to get food, and it's a difficulty to to acquire food on a daily basis, not necessarily just to have in your refrigerator, you know, every week, but just day by day, trying to understand where the next meal is coming from, not three meals a day, but just one meal a day. And that's when I realized that, you know, there are more problems on different levels. And it doesn't necessarily mean the person is poor, because uh, I've observed rich people who have no food. And it sometimes is that they can't acquire food. They don't understand what healthy food is. That That's kind of what led me down the path to understand all food is not good. And I, it made me understand and question more about what is food, what is nutrition. And I think that's just my brain and the way in which I learned to go down these different rabbit holes to understand, you know, what the true meaning and true value of things are, not necessarily what somebody's definition is. So how did you get into looking at the environment, sustainability, food justice, and entering into this program here at the University of Arkansas? Very good question. So I started with understanding that I wanted my family to stay together. I needed community. And in order to do that, you know, people had to have homes to live in. And that was the largest reason why I think, you know, most of my family members tend to, uh, you know, go other places. They have better job opportunities. You know, they have a house of their own. They don't have to live with other family members. And I thought it made more sense to create a space where we could all collectively live uh, in the same area. Uh, even though every family has you know, issues, the biggest thing is to have family close means that you have a support system. And I realized in this collective community I needed to build, there was more than just a house. There was more than just, you know, electricity. We had to have running water. We had to be able to depend on the food that we're growing, you know, 
all these different variables made me understand that one of the biggest components was food. People had to have energy to keep moving and keep going. So I looked at food as that factor that needed to be uh, represented the most. That's what made me decide to go into food security and food resiliency is because it's something that is lacking across the globe. And it's something that if we don't do something about in the next few years, there are going to be a lot more hungry people than we see today. And this program at the University of Arkansas, uh, the Environmental Dynamics Programs, it combines these types of food systems, these natural systems and climate factors, uh, as well as the way that humans adapt to these factors and these different challenges. So that's what drew me here. And I found a family or a home here that allows me to look into my research and find solutions and not just talk about it. The idea of theorizing just it doesn't do it for me. I need to be able to be hands-on, be practical. I like place-based learning. So this program has given me the opportunity to do such. I'm someone who, Terrius, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in cornfields and soybean fields. And I think there's a lot of assumptions folks may have when it comes to agriculture and farming here in the United States. What has been your experience with kind of dispelling some of those ideas around uh, what it looks like to farm and to farm for food here in the U.S.? So I definitely realized that there's a difference between farming and growing food for production for a profit. I realized that just because people are farmers, it does not mean that they are food secure. Oh, right. Sure. Yeah. I mean, where I grew up, where I grew up, the corn that we grew in our fields was for wasn't, export. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't meant for me to eat. It wasn't sweet corn. It was corn <laughs> right. that was going to get ground down for cows or for livestock, right? The same for the soybeans. We weren't eating those as like edamame. <laughs> yeah. we, were, we were, you know, making that into other soy products. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you, you hit it right on the head. And I think that uh, one of the biggest, I guess, misconceptions I had is that, hey, if people are growing food, they're good. You know, they have food. It wasn't until I was able to engage with you know, different families that grew on large scales but had no food to eat. Not until the harvest is sold to, do they have money to go to the grocery store and buy food. There's no exchange of crops between farmers. There's none of that. There is, hey, this is what we, we have for, uh, for sale. This is what this whole purpose is. We are selling this. We're not consuming any of this. And like you said, a lot of times the crops that they have is not for the purpose of human consumption. A lot of times it's made just for feed. You know, so we have a problem with allocation of where these crops go. A lot of times people are food insecure because everyone's growing around them, but the issue is it's allocated for another purpose other than to feed these people. So I've realized that you know, you have to look at every situation on a case-by-case basis. There is no one way. And, you know, my goal is to be able to assess these situations as they come individually, not to look at it as a broad whole. Everybody's different. Hearing you talk about that in terms of food insecurity and what our agricultural patterns tell us, right? I'm thinking, as with many things, right, this goes back to slavery and how that structured our economy. I'm thinking about as a Jamaican and as a country that largely has to import food. Right. And this is a part of that colonial system that was 
here are these islands in the Caribbean that we're going to grow sugarcane on on a wild, wide scale. And then we're going to ship in food because we need all of the arable land to grow sugarcane. And it was enslaved Africans because the slaveholders were unable to provide all of their food needs. They were given these little, very small parcels of land to create their provision grounds. And they started growing little food stuff for their own you know, use in the house, right, and for bartering amongst themselves, right, and creating this alternative economy. And in some cases, it took off, like with bananas, before United Fruit came in and wiped that out and took it to Latin America. So I'm I'm wanting to ask Tarius, how can we connect the legacy of slavery to these current discussions, not only of food insecurity, but also environmental issues and, you know, environmentalism in African-American communities around land, food, and all of that kind of stuff. So I think that, you know, this is, you know, a challenging question. I think it's going to take several decades for us to get to the point that we need to be sustainable and we need to be balanced. But I think that in these communities, I like to call it the gun. I actually you know, took that term from KRS-One. Uh, the gun has to be put back into these communities. And it's through God, through the universe, and through nature. And it's like that alignment and that balance. Once you have that focus and that center, I think that we will be able to understand more about how these problems, they exist on many different scales. So being able to solve these issues, we have to have a different understanding, a more uh, well-rounded understanding, because these issues, they affect affect everyone and everything that we do. So I think the only way we can get back there is to be able to be grounded back into the nature of what things are and un- have a better understanding. And that way we can see how the systems move and we can understand how things grow, how things work together in harmony. And that's the way we bring back the balance. And I think without those principles, I think that we can't continue to live lives by rules. We have to understand that we have to go back to principles of living. And once we can get there, I think it will allow us to take care of a lot of these problems quicker. I think that's what the first step has to be for us to collectively come together and build on principles, the same uniting principles. I'm not certain what that will be. I think that, you know, it's going to take a lot of work for us to come to the table, a lot of us equitably to come to the table and be able to speak our voice and create uh, our pathways with principles. I think that's how we get there first. Speaking of coming to the table in reference to connecting these issues, you know, if we look at the Pigford cases and the the African-American farmers, minority farmers who have sued the U.S. government, particularly the USDA for being denied loans and forced to wait longer for loan approval, the kinds of foreclosure and financial ruin that like farmers have faced, the loss of land that they have encountered, you know, is certainly one of those issues that has been at the forefront in recent times. We've seen as recent as 2022 that class action lawsuits with black and brown farmers over over repealed debt relief under the American Rescue Plan Act was something that was a big part of the zeitgeist, right? But I want to get back to a point that you talked about, the gun, right? A word to KRS one. But you mentioned a part of that or a significant part of that is religiosity. 
what does religion have to do with environmentalism or food insecurity or, you know, this kind of a food justice movement? From your perspective, can you tell us how you connect your, is it all religion? Is it particular kinds of religion? How do you think about it? Well, I think the way religion connects is how you see God, how you connect to your religion. What does it entail? If you can see God as just this one single figure and not see God as a whole, in most African traditions, God is everything. God can be seen in everything. But in some uh, aspects of religion in more of the Western context, God is seen as one specific thing. It is created in a an obscure sense of this is just God and that is everything else. And I think that a lot of times people in the way they hold their religion, they tend to, um, I guess, disconnect themselves with the nature and disconnect themselves with why it is important for them to also be a part of everything and how everything continues to move with them and flows with them. So when they can say, uh, certain people in certain religions can say that they are separate from this group of people or separate from that group of people, it makes it to where it's imbalanced. It makes it to where we can't have harmony um, in the way in which we grow food or the way in which we treat people. When we're talking about housing, we're talking about food, we're talking about all the things you're talking about with redlining, with being able to cancel green spaces in certain areas. These things are only allowed in situations where people deem it's appropriate. And that's where the religion comes into place, because there's not a unification with the one. And that's where, you know, I think there's an imbalance. As I look at we're based here in Fayetteville. The Fayetteville's farmer's market does a, a pretty solid job through the seasons where produce is growing of partnering with low-income folks by making SNAP available for the purchase of produce, um, by offering other uh, education initiatives where people can double their SNAP dollars to buy even more produce. What sort of community-based programs do you see as opportunities for folks to better understand their resources and to better understand what options they may have available to them? I think that being able to have more community engagement, to be able to have workshops and host events that not only teach people to grow food, but also help them be more aware of ways to cook their food or can their food or save their food through different situations. I think those are the type of critical things that we need to be looking for moving forward. I think that being able to allow people to be a part of the conversation to have knowledge about where food pantries are or who needs food and be able to come together as a community collectively and talk about these things, that's what moves us forward. That's how I would continue the conversation. Um, but I think, you know, there's a, um, a development they are putting in Springdale. I think that would be a pretty good site, you know, moving forward, being able to come as a collective. I think that just different hubs throughout the city or throughout the area uh, would increase people's ability to have access to food, but also just, like I said, their knowledge of, you know, what foods are good for them, you know, how they can in increase and improve their health. You know, I think that's the, the number one thing we need to work on is to be able to have better value of life and understand, you know, how the things that we are doing are impacting us and the things that we are not doing are impacting us. I'm surprised that food, environmental justice, food insecurity is not a bigger 
has not been talked about as a bigger issue in the reparation movement mm. here in the United States, because certainly in the Caribbean it has been, right? In terms of you look at the rates of this is what was affecting black people here with COVID-19, the rates of diabetes and high blood pressure, right? And it's the same thing in the Caribbean, making the region one of the, you know, we see Usain Bolt and all these people and we're <laughs> like, they're the picture of health, right? Um, you know, these stellar athletes that dominate um, track and field and all of that. But it's quite unhealthy where black people in the Caribbean and also African-Americans are dealing with significant issues of diabetes and high blood pressure. And if you think about those issues, right, of sugar and mm-hmm. salt and food deserts, what kind of foods are available there when with slavery and the kinds of foods that black people had access to, highly salted, right, in terms of preserving food, not fresh, right? right? And so genetically, we've developed an inability to metabolize sugar and salt. Right. And so you're spending a lot more in the black community on those kinds of diseases. And so it's going to look, the budget for diets that have those kinds of issues, it's going to look significantly different than any other issues. And so, again, I'm certainly surprised. And that tells us about the dire need for having these kinds of access to fresh fruits. But, Tarius, you've talked about restructuring lawns, right, to grow these kinds of foods. We have an obsession, especially in the United States, for having these pristine front lawns Mm -hmm. that are kind of useless, right? It's, It's just for aesthetics, right? Why is it that we don't... I'm like distraught here in the United States. I'm like... I'm looking at all these trees when I'm driving, and I'm like, I wish they were a mango tree. Hmm. You know, I'm like, why aren't they mango trees? Why can't I just see a mango tree or a fruit tree that I could just stop, like, when I'm driving, say, to Texas or something, and pick a fruit and, like, just, like, stop and eat it? Why don't we have that? I think it goes back to, you know, perception. I think it's not sexy, you know, as people see it. And a nice, fresh-cut, manicured lawn is it's appealing. But seeing weeds overgrown, people that are, you know, practicing things like regenerative agriculture uh, or cover cropping, it's not looked at like, hey, that's awesome. It's looked at like, man, they need to do something with their yard because you are seeing nature in itself. And I think the manicured lawn, it looks as something that somebody has put time and effort into. It looks like it's crisp, it's sharp. It looks valuable. It looks valuable. (laughs) It's a part of increasing the real estate price. That's right. I, and I totally agree. But it goes back to, you know, the, the way the system is designed, people's perception. If you are selling a home and you say you have a functional garden at your home, that's a selling feature. You know, but I don't think that, you know, that is viewed that way to most people unless that is your passion. I'd buy a house that has a garden in it already, you know, but that's because I want a garden. But, you know, most people don't have time to keep up a garden or even understand, you know, what it takes. So that's not a selling point to most people. I think that's the biggest reason why you don't see many gardens. You see more, uh, you know, just grass. As I was hearing Karee talk about a mango tree uh, just in the wild, I can't help but think as someone who grew up surrounded by farmers, the role that capitalism 
has exactly in in agriculture, mm-hmm. especially on a wide on a you know on a massive scale like the United States. What role do you think capitalism has in preventing? the sorts of things that Karee daydreams about on her drives to Texas. This idea that, like, you can stop on the side of the road and just grab a handful of of berries, berries, right? What role do you think capitalism has in preventing that sort of just wild growth from happening? Yeah, I think capitalism plays a big role. I think that what we're talking about, or my idea, is uh, more of a socialistic standpoint. So it makes it to where... Well, most people kind of stay away from that because we're talking about collective community. We're talking about money being in the form of food passing through community. Exchange, hey, I have this many tomatoes. Hey, let me get some mangoes. That's bartering. So I don't think that capitalism is necessarily on the front of the system that I'm, I'm thinking about, but it does have its place. I think that any person who's looking to engage in agriculture for themselves can see the capitalism but they can also see the, the compassion to where community has to be the basis. So I don't know. I, I think that capitalism for most people that are looking to change the system, I don't think that is you know the first thing in mind because making money is not the first thing in mind. Yeah, but I wonder if it stifles the ability to do this, right? If someone just wants to have... If someone wants to have an apple orchard in their backyard and just say, hey, if you need an apple, come get an apple. Am I the president of your community, Matthew? If I'm the president, I'm going to say you're creating a mess. Yeah. And you're bringing down our house properties and causing flies and... Bringing and strangers into our community after hours. and vagrants right. and degenerates to come and pick up maybe apples and you're inviting crime And if you're a big corporation, you're probably going to not advocate for that kind of a thing because you want to create that business where people come and buy that rather than have it growing out there in the wild where people might have access to it. Exactly. And create an alternative market that is driven by community. Exactly. Yeah. Terius, what, assuming everything you're doing works, what problem do you hope to be solving in five years? So I hope to be solving, you know, a lot of health constraints that people have currently now have improved sense of living. I also hope to uh, increase more awareness to where more people are growing food on a day-to-day basis in their own living quarters. I hope that I'll be able to put a dent in, you know, just the health disparities that we have. I hope to produce more black farmers and be able to have the youth, you know, be uh, inspired and uplifted about agriculture again. Um, right now, I think a lot of people have this um, this stigma that, you know, uh, farming is slavery or uh, farming is work that is, you know, so hard that is backbreaking or, you know, I don't want to be like, you know, my ancestors, but they have no real understanding a lot of times because they just don't know the history, uh, but also they don't have the experience with it. So I, I hope to be able to motivate and have more people that want to continue the same work that I'm trying to do now. You are going to be teaching a black environmental justice course in the fall next year. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I'll be including a lot of the things that I'm talking about right now, talking about environmental justice, how we got here, some history, um, you know, things moving forward. But the biggest thing I'll be talking about is resiliency, being able to 
uh, understand foraging. You know, you mentioned about having small areas of, of land that are isolated uh, that, you know, people can work off of. My goal is to be able to teach and show people different ways, different practices to be able to get food and collect food and be resilient. And it's not just about uh, the food portion. It's about the relationships we have. It's about being able to have access and, you know, just building community. And I think that's the biggest, you know, thing that people can uh, expect to take from this course, um, understanding uh, different ways of, of thinking, different vantage points, and understand not just from where they sit, but, you know, just other life experiences from other people. Thank you so much, Darius. This sounds like a very interesting course, and students are in for a treat. A combination of different forms of instructions. They'll be getting hands-on stuff, as well as theoretical stuff, as well as connecting with communities of other scientists and learning, as you said, tools to identify all of these things. So look forward to it, and thank you so much. Keep us abreast of how this goes. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you all have a great day. Terius Bruce is a doctoral student in environmental dynamics at the University of Arkansas. Our show is hosted by Dr. Cree Banton and produced by me, Matthew Moore. Sophia Narani is our associate producer. KUAF produces a lot of podcasts, like the brand new show called The Beloved Community, a podcast made in collaboration with the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council. You can find the whole big list of shows we make KUAF.com slash podcast or by searching for KUAF in your podcast app.